Welcome to the Lion's Den University Report. This program brings you a behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual life on today's university and college campuses. Now here's your host, Glenn Bailey. We are here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at uh, the 20th Century Club on the uh, University of Pittsburgh campus at the Christian Scientific Society annual meeting and there are a number of speakers speaking about the relationship of the various aspects of science to our Christian faith. And my guest for this program is a professor of the adjacent uh, university, Carnegie Mellon University, just across the street from uh, Pitt. And uh, he's a professor in the Robotics Institute, Dr. John Dolan. And John, uh, we're glad to have you on the program today. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, this is an interesting conference we've been involved with and some uh, a variety of subjects. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, focusing on uh, um, a lot of times we hear about uh, American exceptionalism as a subject of uh, politics these days, uh, but uh, we're talking about human exceptionalism and how the human being and uh, and the human mind are uh, express uh, God's uh, part in our lives. Right, and that's of particular interest to me as somebody who works in robotics because one of the goals of at least certain aspects of robotics has been to try to imitate human behavior. And we are doing that, for example, in some of the work that I do with uh, self-driving cars, where we're trying to make cars drive in a way that is safe, certainly. And since the safest drivers we know of right now are humans, in some cases, we're trying to actually imitate them. I see. Right. And uh, boy, I love to drive. I hope I'm not replaced. But <laughs> but in any case, uh, so that's cutting edge uh, research there. And, and you hear about it in the news from time to time. I guess a number of cities are experimenting with uh, driverless cars now. Right. I don't know exactly how many Uber uh, in how many cities Uber's doing it. But of course, Pittsburgh is where they got started. And then Google has done quite a lot of work in, in California. And all of the automakers have some kind of program in this area. Right. Do you work with some of the companies in doing your research? I do. We have had a research lab for autonomous driving with GM since the year 2008, which was shortly after we had won a race called the Urban Challenge in 2007 with a lot of support from GM. And then as the director of a master's program at Carnegie Mellon, I end up interacting with a lot of companies to try to help students get internships and, and finally uh, uh, full employment. And so I have a list of probably about at least 20 different self-driving or autonomous driving in some form uh, car companies at this point. Right. Okay. And what what are some of the, would you say, are some of the biggest challenges to uh, ultimately seeing that become a reality? Uh, I usually, there's several that I usually cite. One of them is just uh, expense. It, it's expensive to create uh, an autonomous car now. Usually they've been research uh, platforms, and so it's, it's pretty expensive to buy laser sensors. Uh, which are pretty important for this kind of work. Also, to be able to localize to the accuracy you need, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, and that's just not going to be practical for a uh, consumer to pay for an automobile. So it might be fine for Uber to pay for something in their fleet, but expense is one thing. Another thing would be just the difficulty of the situations. Uh, like you said, you like to drive, I like to drive. Uh, Americans probably notoriously like to drive, right. but we aren't so happy about it perhaps in stop and go situations where maybe we prefer to do something else. And But those are perhaps some of the tougher situations because they often occur in urban environments where a lot of unusual things can happen. So all those uh, handling those situations in a way comparable to the way that we as humans with our 
high intelligence, our intuitive understanding of environments and that sort of thing can do is difficult. And then a third thing is, well, actually, I, I usually cite four. Uh, a third thing is it's very difficult to verify complex software. And these software systems are very voluminous, and you can't possibly exhaustively test everything they could do. So you have to come up with method, smart methods of doing that. Right. And the fourth area is um, the legal questions, which I'm not an expert on, but people are looking at, but there hasn't been a great deal of progress made in assigning blame or liability for bad things that happen, uh, putting in place the insurance vehicles that are necessary in order to cover what will happen when we start to have widespread autonomous cars on the roads. Sure. Okay. Well, and uh, not to go too far into the whole question, but we have seen one of the things I think that uh, is a, maybe an untold story is the reduction of traffic deaths over the past uh, decades, that uh, we've seen a dramatic decrease from maybe fifty to 60,000 down to 20,000 to 30,000, perhaps. Right. Last number I saw was around 35,000 maybe in the United States, uh, still over a million worldwide, I think. But yeah, I guess the main reason that it's come down is because of the uh, in the good work done by engineers at car companies in introducing safety measures and then so-called autonomous drive or what is it uh, advanced driving assistance systems ADAS systems and uh, that has brought it down and I, I think autonomous driving has the potential to bring it down even further which is one of the reasons we're doing it but of course there have been some unfortunate recent incidents with Tesla's autopilot autopilot where the, there have been a few fatalities which Tesla has said has been a problem with the drivers themselves not using the system the way that it was designed to be used. I see. Okay. And the other side, the human factor that I think has been addressed more directly is the drunk driving problem because half of uh, accidents still are a result of uh, somebody either drunk or now increasingly using uh, drugs. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that was the percentage or the fraction. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that people have proposed uh, using some kind of sensor similar, I guess, to what the police use in order to detect the level of alcohol in your blood that would prevent someone from using the car if they weren't fit to do so. Right. And so uh, you mentioned kind of the connection to the uh, uh, exceptionalism of humanity and how that relates to what you're doing with, you know, how far can uh, robots go? Before we get into that, though, you are a follower of Jesus Christ and maybe share a little bit uh, briefly of how you came to Christ and uh, how you've lived the Christian faith uh, sure. over the years. Well, I grew up in a Baptist church, First Baptist Church in Willingboro, New Jersey, and from as long as I can remember, my parents were believers and encouraged me to, uh, in various ways, to, to be a follower of Jesus. When I was young, uh, five years old, there was an evangelist who came to our church. Uh, I felt like I wanted, I had, there was a distance between me and God, and I felt uh, some knowledge of my sinfulness at that time, and I uh, responded to an invitation that was given. As the years went by, and I began to grow more in my faith, one of the things that uh, had bothered me was that even though I really appreciated the emphasis on Scripture in the church I grew up in and learning it, I felt like there wasn't a strong connection between what we were experiencing and learning in church and what was going on in, say, the general culture, although I probably wouldn't have phrased it in that way exactly when I was that young. And as I got older uh, and in the early years of college and became exposed to more Christian history, some of the writings of C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton that helped me to make that connection to a greater extent. I also had a great experience with a friend of mine that I met when I was in Germany. 
uh, on a Fulbright scholarship who had just become a Christian. He was going to Harvard. And just the way that Christ had gripped him and his heart to care for people and to, to take care of them. For example, there's a fellow who was having problems with alcoholism that he just welcomed into his apartment, into mm-hmm. his apartment and right. was able to live there. It was also a great example to me, and I've remained friends with him. He's now a, um, a pastor down at uh, Vanderbilt University. Great, great. Okay. And so our Christian faith is uh, uh, not only an intellectual thing, but a, a very much practical in our lives. And But you mentioned also that, uh, you know, even as a five-year-old, you knew guilt. Mm-hmm. And that the, the message of Christianity is that there's an answer for our sinfulness, that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. And right. I remember a friend of mine witnessed to a professor at our uh, when we were in college at Berkeley, and it was a history professor, and he shared with him the Christian message, and he said, uh, you know, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? And perhaps a listener is wrestling with that question right now, and the response to that professor was, uh, no, I'm not ready right now, but I worry about it all the time. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact of our own guilt, uh, very early on, we realize we do things that we know are wrong. And even an atheist has that conscience that God right. has given him to draw him to uh, the need for repentance and then the offer of a Savior, yeah. uh, which is, is Christ. And so you found intellectual answers, too, to the questions people you know uh, sincerely raise about why believe the Bible, why believe in Jesus. And, right. and we do have satisfactory answers, and some of these guys like C.S. Lewis are – a great, uh, Very helpful in that way, yeah. The story you told reminded me of uh, the, the statement of Augustine where he said, make me pure Lord, but not yet. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we need to come to that place. And uh, even here we're uh, around uh, Easter time. Uh, that uh, cruel death of Christ on the cross was not for no reason or because he was a political enemy, right. uh, but rather he, he, the sinless one, took the, uh, the sin of us, all of us who have all sinned, on himself so that we could be forgiven and have a place in heaven one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're here uh, talking about human exceptionalism, and you're doing dealing with robots. We're talking about how, you know, what makes man in the image of God? How is he superior than the rest of creation and what God uh, has given him? And how, how do you wrestle with that issue when you think of robots? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, we had, just to give a little bit of background, uh, a few of my colleagues co-taught a course about 20 years ago on science and Christianity and uh, with a colleague in the philosophy department over in CMU who was an atheist but very friendly towards the idea of discussing the pros and cons of different views about reality, Christian and otherwise. And I had the responsibility in that particular course of talking about the question of artificial intelligence and uh, it was related at least uh, indirectly to human exceptionalism exceptionalism and it's a tough question I mean I think in some ways as some of the speakers in the conference we've been attending allude to there it's it's more of a, a theological and philosophical question or it needs to be decided on those grounds than perhaps based on empirical evidence uh, But, for example, some people will simply claim that human consciousness or thinking is computable, uh, meaning that it can be represented in the way that various computer scientists like Turing and others have uh, formalized. And therefore, there's no real difference. uh, Someday, a computer will be able to pass the so-called Turing test, and if he, he fools us and we think he's a human being, then there will be no substantial difference between us and and that entity. And... um, 
I think even some Christian thinkers have been friendly to that notion. For example, a fellow named Donald Mackay, uh, who was a phys- trained as a physicist and then worked as a neuroscientist, uh, said he asked the question, "Well, if that were to happen, what would that that entities, that robots, let's say, status be before God?" And his answer was, "Well, then." Uh, that robot should worship God just as human beings do. No. <laughs> don't, don't think that answers all the questions. But right. At right now, the way I feel, although some people may say that this is being, uh, in some cases, at least in small restricted cases, being proven false, uh, is that it'd be very difficult for a robot to achieve the range of behaviors that a human can. And I, I don't just mean playing chess, winning on Jeopardy, driving a car but I mean empathetically relating to one another, loving in, in a way that is convincing, right? Some people mm-hmm. say sometimes, well, how do you know your mother loves you when they're trying to advance a, a materialistic view, a sort of neuroscientific view that we're nothing right. but protoplasm? Sure. And in a, in a certain sense, you could just say, well, I, I can't prove it, but I know she does. Mm-hmm. And it, it, to some extent, there's a similar kind of thing going on here. Right. I think I can't prove that that's not a human being, but... Uh, Right now, in any event, it's very difficult for existing systems to even marginally achieve the range of things that humans can do in terms of doing all these things. And maybe in relation to our uh, mention of sin, that, uh, you know, we don't blame the animals when they do the things that they do. And we probably wouldn't blame the robots. Maybe we'd blame the uh, creator of a robot. Right. But uh, in any case, good to be with you today. My guest, John Dolan, a professor of robotics uh, here at uh, Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon University. We're actually here at the University of Pittsburgh today doing some interviews. And, and uh, John, we thank you for taking the time today to join us. Thanks, Clint. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to the Lion's Den University Reports. If you would like more information about the Christian life or would like to contact the Lion's Den or one of the guests, please write us at the Lion's Den Post Office Box 226, Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania, 17844, or email ltcldur at yahoo.com.